0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rozieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you on the fence trying to decide between a standard angle and low angle bench plane? Do you need to know how to tune and use a tongue and groove plane? Are you struggling to make your small shop space work efficiently? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 21 of the show for March 7th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Chikowsky, Bill Warnock, Christopher K. Lawrence, Palinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delaurier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, Jared Tolan, Chris Barnes, Christopher Bush, Lance Stutchell, John Schuster, Steve Daneman, Kyle Groff and Cupressus sertina. Thank you everyone for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com/brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once a month patron only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. And the uh, most recent patron extra show was published on February 28th and was actually a video extra on clenching nails. So I just finished up my uh, panel gauge article for popular woodworking and uh, it's kind of exciting. I got the the go-ahead from Popwood 2 to release a companion video for it. So there's going to be a, a video on building the panel gauge on my YouTube channel as well. And it's going to be also be cross-posted on the Popular Woodworking Magazine uh, YouTube channel as well. So look for that coming out soon. And uh, you can look for the article in the August 2018 issue of the magazine. Uh, and I've also been for any of you that are interested, um, posting log cabin progress photos over on my Instagram channel. So, uh, if you're interested in the progress on our new log cabin, you can uh, follow along with that on Instagram as we build that ourselves and try to finish that up this year. Other than that though, not too much going on. So, uh, let's get into our listener questions. Um, and I need, to uh, starting to get low on some questions here, folks. So, uh, Start uh, can keep sending in your questions if you have stuff you want to want to ask on the show, Um, you know, send in the uh, send in that voice note or or leave a voicemail or you can email it too if you want. But uh, it'd be it'd be nice to have some uh, some voice note or voicemail questions just so uh, we can hear someone else's voice on the show besides mine. So our first question for today is from Fred Mitchell. Fred says, I'm finishing up a wall-hanging tool cabinet, and somehow I have accidentally done a pretty good job of it, so I'm uncharacteristically motivated to have the finishing touches go well. To keep the two inset frame and panel doors, which fill the entire carcass opening evenly in position when closed, I'm thinking about using bullet catches, but would be grateful to hear your favorites if bullet catches are best avoided for this purpose. If bullet catches are a reasonable way to go, what's your favorite method to get an even and precise install? If not, can you tell me about a good system or method uh, of installation to keep the frame and panel doors nicely even when closed that doesn't intrude much into the carcass? I don't want to bang a joiner plane into an exposed magnetic latch or something else like that. So, um, I'll start this off by by prefacing that I'm not a big fan of any kind of catches at all um, in the cabinets that I make, you know, I've, I like the way that the, the shakers do it and there's a couple ways that they do it. Um, the first would be like a, a turnbuckle or, or what looks like sort of a, a little, it's really just a, a piece, small piece of wood attached to the face frame of the carcass with a, a screw and that piece of wood can spin And when you close the door, you turn that little piece of wood and that's what holds the door closed. Um, The other way that I've seen the shakers do it is to use a knob that actually turns. So the shakers would have used a lot of those um, mushroom shaped wooden knobs. And what you do is on the inside of that knob, you, you, um, you glue a little piece of wood and you don't glue the knob itself in place. The knob is allowed to spin so that when you close the door, You can spin that little mushroom-shaped wooden knob, and on the inside of the door, a little wooden latch goes down behind the face frame, and that holds the inset door in place. Um, Those are really my two favorite methods. Um, But I realize that not everyone wants to have a catch on the outside or wants to make that little knob thing. Um, So you know there are hardware choices that you can use as well. Of course, the bullet catches is one way to go, um, and they're just really little. It's a little spring-loaded ball that you mount into the face frame, and then the door has a little cup, so that when you close the door, the little spring-loaded ball retracts, and then when the door is in its fully closed and seated position, um, the little ball gets in, you know, seats into the cup and holds the door closed. You know, if you're going to install those, my recommendation would be to. To use a marking gauge um, and a square, really, I, I set the doors in place and then on the outside of the door with a pencil um, and a square or, or a straight edge, mark a line across both the door and the face frame to locate the horizontal position of that bullet catch. And then you're going to use a marking gauge to gauge off the front edge of the face frame and the front edge of the door to locate how deep that catch is going to go um, on the the styles of the, the door and the, um, and the face frame. And that's going to ensure that the, the catches line up. Um, another option would be something like hidden magnets. I believe Lee Valley and I'm sure other places um, sell them as well. It's sort of like a little recessed rare earth magnet that you can recess into the face frame. Um, and then there's a small a small magnetic piece of steel or whatever that gets recessed into the top style or rail of the door. And when it closes it, it holds everything closed. Um, but no matter what kind of catch or latch you decide to use, the most important thing is to make sure that the door itself is flat. So when you make your mortise and tenon joinery for the door, and you make your raised panel for the door, you really need to make sure that when the mortise and tenon joinery goes together, there's no twist or cup or anything in that door frame itself. And you also really don't want any twist or cup in the door panel. You want that door to to be dead flat when it gets assembled. That's really the number one thing that you need to do to make sure that your doors are going to stay aligned when they're closed. If either one of those doors has any hint of cup or bow or twist in it when it's assembled, no no amount of mechanical fastener or latch or magnet or anything is going to hold those doors in alignment. They're, they're just not going to line up. So the most important thing is to make sure that your doors are absolutely 100% flat when you make your mortise and tenon joinery and when you Put that panel in there because if the doors aren't flat the panel, the they're never going to line up right so our next question comes from charles matthew charles says hello i'm currently building a nicholson bench and saw that yours is pretty much the same thing that i'm building i have a few questions i used cheap home depot 2x10s that i ripped and glued to build the legs and stretchers however i'm wondering if using white pine for the top will work I'll probably not use 2x10 or 2x12 for the top and aprons as I'm not very well equipped to get the wood flat. So would 2-inch thick white pine be okay with holdfasts? Otherwise, I'll use birch or ash, but it's more than double the price. So um, white pine would certainly be just fine. Uh, My workbench top is actually made out of 2x material that was pretty flat from the home center. I didn't really have to flatten it much, Um, and it's... It's what we find most up on, in the Northeast. Um, and it, they stamp it. It's called hem fur. Um, and my understanding is it's neither fir nor hemlock. Uh, or maybe it is. I don't know. But um, it's soft. Um, maybe a little harder than white pine, but not by a whole lot. It's much stringier than white pine. Um, and what I had to do was put some blocking underneath my holdfast holes to make them hold. But if you're going with full two inch thick material, Holdfast should hold just fine in that white pine. Um, And in fact, I have a whole bunch of um, 4x10 and 4x8 and 4x6 leftovers, cutoffs and pieces um, from building our log cabin, all in white pine. And I'm actually going to be building um, a small workbench that I can take to demonstrations and things um, out of that white pine Uh, It's going to be more of a a Moxon slash Rubo style with a, you know, just a three and a half inch thick top and and big beefy legs. But, um, uh, you know, it should, your two inch thick white pine should hold just fine um, with holdfasts. Our next question comes from Ryan Rich. Ryan says, I've gotten into hand tools over the past year and have acquired and restored a record number four, number five, and number seven plane a sergeant block plane, and a Veritas apron plane. These have served me well so far. Recently, over the past six months, I've been working with more exotic woods that tend to tear out more. I recently attended the Lee Nielsen hand tool event in Chicago and purchased a low angle jack and a rabbit block plane. I love the low angle jack and the versatility of it. I've begun to research low angle smoothing planes and I'm wondering if they're worth the investment over a regular style number four. The two I'm looking at are the Veritas and Nilly Nielsen. Is there a reason why they're cheaper than a regular Bailey style number four? And would you suggest one design over the other due to the adjustment mechanisms? So I'll I'll preface this by, well, let me, let me just back up a second. So the low angle plane in and of itself is not going to help you with your tear out problems. Um, Tear out is really battled better by higher angles, not lower angles. So in, in essence, you really want to be using a plane with a higher cutting angle to battle tear out on long grain. If you're having long grain tear out problems, that higher cutter, cutting angle is what's really going to help, not a lower angle. Now, with that said, with the low angle planes, you can get a blade with a higher grind on it to give it that higher cutting angle. But you can also do the same thing with a regular uh, number four plane. So you can, you can grind a back bevel or hone a back, a small, very small back bevel on the iron of a, of a bevel down style, Bailey style plane. And that will increase the effective cutting angle to 50 degrees, 55 degrees, 60 degrees, whatever you want based on the angle of that back bevel. But also keep in mind that the chip breaker on those planes is there for a reason. If you're having problems with tear out, my guess is that your one, your blade is not sharp enough. You know, If you're having problems with your tear out with your number four, your blade is not sharp enough and your chip breaker is not set properly. Because if your blade is sharp enough and your chip breaker is set close enough to the edge of that blade, and you're taking a fine enough cut, you shouldn't be having problems with tear out. Um and if if you are, then it's not something that a low angle plane is necessarily going to help you so you should be able to handle those woods with a low angle plane just as he or, or with a high angle plane, a regular angle Bailey style plane just as well as you can with a low angle plane. The real difference between the low angle planes and the high angle planes and the uh, standard Bailey style planes comes down to ergonomics more than anything. Some people like the feel of the low angle planes, the bevel up planes, and some people like the feel of the standard Bailey style. I'm a fan of the standard Bailey style. Um, I just can't get used to the feel of the bevel up style planes. They just don't feel right to me. Um, and and my You know, bevel-down Bailey-style planes do just fine on just about any wood that I've ever thrown at it. Um, You know, again, the secret to taming tear-out with a standard Bailey-style plane is going to be making sure that the blade is sharp and making sure that your chip breaker is set properly. Uh, In terms of adjustment, you know, the adjusters between the Lee Nielsen and the Veritas, you know, just like the ergonomics and the difference between the the low angle bevel up plane and the Bailey style plane, it just comes down to a personal preference and feel. There's really no difference between them. Um, They both work just fine. And then in terms of the the low angle planes being cheaper, the, the bevel up style being cheaper than a regular Bailey style, it really just comes down to the manufacturing process and the amount of material in them. The bevel up planes don't have a separate frog. Um, And that the Bailey style planes do have a separate frog and that's a whole nother casting. So that adds a good deal of expense to the manufacture of the plane. So that additional expense for the Bailey style planes is really coming from the fact that they have to have another mold um, and do, you know, cast and machine a whole nother part that they don't have to include in the bevel up style planes. And then in addition, the bevel down style belly planes have the chip breaker, which adds cost as well. So that's where your cost difference is coming from. So our last question for today comes from Scott Elia. Scott says, I'm looking into looking to get into more tongue and groove work and just found a Stanley number 48 that I ordered from eBay. I've never used this plane. I was wondering if you could provide some advice and tips. Are there any tricks to sharpening and honing the blades? So Scott, these planes do a wonderful job of making tongue and grooves. Now I've never used a Stanley number forty-eight myself. I've handled them, but I've never actually used one. I have used the Lee Nielsen version at the um, at one of the, the hand tool events, Lee Nielsen, Lee Nielsen hand tool events, um, and they are wonderful planes as well. And both of them do a, a fantastic job making tongue and groove joints. In terms of of tricks, you know the the primary thing you want to keep in mind when using a tongue and groove plane or or really any type of joinery plane that has a fence is that you want to be referencing off the proper face. So, you know, any good joinery practice is to mark a reference face and a reference edge, and all of your marking and planing reference should be off of one of those two. Reference surfaces, either that reference face or the reference edge. So the fence of the plane should always be resting against the reference face or the reference edge. Similarly, you know, if you're marking with a marking gauge or with a uh, a square, the body of the square or the fence of the gauge should be referencing against the mark the reference face or the reference edge. And there should only be one reference face and one reference edge on each board. So. As long as you keep that in mind, your tongue and groove should line up well. If you get them backwards, if you play, if you reference the fence off of the you know the front face, let's let's say you choose the um, the front face as your reference face, and if you get them backwards, if you reference the front face while you're making the tongue and the back face while you're making the groove, then the panel is not necessarily going to line up. Only if the the thickness is exactly dead on and the plane is set to make that tongue and groove exactly dead center of a board that thickness are you going to luck out and things might line up properly. However, if you reference off the front face on both of those boards, even if those boards are different thicknesses, the front face at least is going to line up. So that's really the trick with the tongue and groove planes is to make sure you mark your reference faces and make sure that the fence only um, references off of those reference faces of the board and everything will line up real nice. In terms of sharpening the blade, you actually probably have an easier time with the Stanley uh, than you would with the, the Lee Nielsen or a wooden style tongue and groove plane. And the reason is that the Stanley uses two separate blades. So you can put them in a honing guide if you want, or if you're honing by hand, you just hone them separately. Um, the real trick with the Stanley is getting the blades set up. The lineal Nielsen uh, design and vintage wooden tongue and groove planes use a single, uh, single piece forked iron. So it's not two separate irons like you have on the Stanley 48, which doesn't seem like a problem, but... Where it can cause problems is when you hone it, you really need to make sure that those two edges are perfectly even with each other and that the blade is honed perfectly square or that the rear blade, the the one that's going to cut the back side of the tongue, um, is set slightly, slightly deeper than the front side. Um, and those are really the two schools of thought in terms of, Tongue, making tongue and grooves. The first is that the blade should be perfectly dead even so that when you put the tongue and groove together, both shoulders, front and back, close up nice and tight. The old school thought was make the back side of the tongue and groove, the side that's not going to show, make that part of the tongue cut ever so slightly deeper than the front side. And the reasoning for that is then you don't have to fuss with the joint at all. When you go to put it together, because the back side is cut slightly deeper, in essence, it's relieved, and the joint is always going to close super tight on the front side of the joint. You might have a small gap on the back side of the joint, but since that side isn't seen, it's really not a big deal. The joint will always close tight on the front side. Now, if you want to do that with an old wooden style tongue and groove plane or with the Lee Nielsen, where it has a single piece iron, you need to carefully hone either an angle in that edge so that the um, the backside cuts a little bit deeper or you need to hone the backside of that, that um, tonguing blade a little bit deeper, uh, sorry, a little bit longer. You know, that one needs to be a little bit longer than the front blade. The, the front one would need to be uh, honed or ground just a tiny bit shorter than the front one so that they're offset that can be kind of a pain in the butt to do so uh, With the Stanley you have the advantage of it being easier to set up either way If you want to set it up even you just have to make sure that the two blades are set evenly If you want to use the old-school way of thought where the back blade cuts a little bit deeper um, That's actually very easy to set up with the Stanley because you just set it up so that the back blade is projecting a little bit more and cuts a little bit deeper And then that way you're going to have a relief on the back side of the panel and the front side is guaranteed to close up nice and tight. So that's all for questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, and I hope you do and hope you send them in, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is going to be working in a small shop space. You know, I've worked in a, a small shop for just about the entirety of my woodworking journey. Um, the largest space that I've ever had is what I'm working in now, which is about the size of a one-car garage. but. For about ten years, I did all of my woodworking from a seven by thirteen foot space that really wasn't much larger than most master suite closets being built today. Uh, if you've seen any of my podcasts or read any of my past articles in Popular Woodworking magazine, all of those, all of the, the video and photos in any of those um, those videos and, and articles were taken in that small seven by thirteen foot space. So um, you've probably seen, you know, seen my my old shop. Um, Now I know most of you probably aren't working in spaces quite as small as that old shop um, because it seems like basements and and garages are probably the most popular spaces for for shops these days. Um, But you know, even these larger spaces can feel small if you let them get cramped and cluttered. Um, So what I want to talk about today are some strategies for simplifying and staying organized and efficient in a small space. So what I have for you today are are seven tips for for being efficient and organized in a small shop. So my first tip is to start with the workbench. You know, in a lot of shops, a table saw is considered the heart of the shop, and it's usually the the first major tool purchase um, that's moved into place. You know, if you're gonna do most of your work with power tools, You go out and that's the first thing you get is a table table saw and you clear out everything out and you move that saw into the center of the shop. The problem with table saws, though, is that they have quite a large footprint. You know, the saw itself has a big footprint. You need lots of in-feed space and out-feed space and you want room to at least the right side of the saw so that you have room for your rip fence and and to, you know... um, rip wide sheet goods or something like that on the saw. So you need a lot of infeed in space. You need a lot of outfeed space. You've probably got an outfeed table on the outfeed side of the saw um, and probably some, a good amount of room or some kind of table off to the right. So in a small space that really leaves little room for anything else. So my suggestion would be if you only have a small space to work in, I would suggest foregoing the table saw. If you're going to try and do a lot of your work with hand tools and find other methods for, for doing things that you would do on a table saw, such as a bandsaw for your ripping Um, instead of the table saw, start with a good workbench. It needs to be, you know, a good size. It needs to be solid. It needs to be heavy. And regardless of whether you prefer to do a lot of work with power tools or hand tools, No shop can really function efficiently without a good, solid, flat workbench. And in a small shop, the workbench is where just about everything is going to take place. It's where you're going to do your layout. It's where you're going to do your joinery. It's where you're going to do your assembly um, for your projects. It's where you're going to finish your projects. So, you know, you really need to have a a good workbench. I say you start, you know, you, you want your workbench to be as long as you have space for my current workbench is eight foot, and where I have it right now on a long wall of my shop under a window it fits perfectly. In my previous shop I had it on the thirteen foot wall again, underneath the window. And it was a little bit tight because it was only thirteen feet long and I didn't have a whole lot of space on either end of the workbench, but it worked. Um you know sometimes I wish my eight foot bench was longer. When I'm sticking moldings and things like that, um, but you know, an eight-foot bench is a is a good place to be, and you should be able to do everything you need to on on an eight-foot bench. But small spaces don't always permit a bench of that size. Um, you know, for small to moderate furniture work, I think you can get away with a bench as small as five feet. That'll allow you to build things like chests of drawers and and tables, and still permit longer appliances to be secured to the bench for working stock. So if you want, if you want to stick some moldings, you can clamp a sticking board to a five foot bench and probably, you know, stick some seven to eight foot moldings. Um, I really wouldn't go less than five feet though, you know, unless you're just so, you know, so squeezed for space that you can't even fit a five foot bench on the wall. Um, but I would go with a bench that's at least five feet long. Um, and in fact, that's the size of the bench that I'm that I'm going to be building that I mentioned earlier. I'm going to be building a, a new pine work bench um, from some of the leftover four-by uh, pieces from building our cabin, and that's going to be a, a five-foot bench. Uh, for the depth of the bench, at least 18 inches. Um, when you start to get shallower than 18 inches, your case sides and, and larger pieces start to slip off the bench top, and it, it's tough to do assembly on anything smaller than about 18 inches. But I also don't recommend making the bench much deeper than about 24 to 26 inches. Um, 24 to 26 inches is, that's, if you think about it, that's the depth of your kitchen counters. And kitchen counters are always 24 inches for a reason. 24 inches is about the maximum that most people can reach across and still get to things on the wall. So in your kitchen, if you need to plug something in on the above the counter, you need to reach across that counter and plug it in see that, that 24 inch depth. If that depth was much more than 24 inches, you'd really be stretching to do what you had to do. Um, if you're going to put your workbench up against the wall, this becomes m- even more important because if you're going to hang tools on the wall or have things on the wall over your workbench, especially if they're, you know, above shoulder height, When you start to get a workbench that's more than 24 inches deep, you're going to find that you're not going to be able to reach things that are on the wall much above shoulder height because that reach is just going to be too far, you know, unless you're like 6'6 or something like that. But for the average height person with the average length arms, you really don't want to have a bench that's much more than 24 inches deep uh, because it just won't allow you to reach anything across of it. Um, in my opinion, the bench should go along the longest wall in the shop. Um, I don't care for workbenches out in the middle. Um, I'm going to be, my five foot bench is probably going to end up out in the middle of the shop once I build it. Um, but that's more going to be, you know, for, for photographic reasons, for filming video and for taking pictures for articles and things like that um, because it's easier to position cameras around a bench that's out in the middle of the room. But in my opinion, it's easier to work on a bench that's up against a wall, especially if you've got a window above the bench, it gives you lots of natural light. Um, And it also takes up the least amount of space is in a small shop. If you can tuck the bench against a wall and then you have all that space out in the middle of the room to, you know, keep Partially assembled projects and things like that. Um, you're also going to want at least a foot to the right side of the bench if you're right-handed because you need to have that space off the right-hand side of the bench to start like a long plane. If you're using a joiner plane uh, on a long piece of stock, you need some room to the right side of the bench to, to, um, to start that plane. Um, and I also like at least two feet to the left side of the bench. And that's for planing off the end of a board and for your shavings to to pile up. Um, you know, if you're planing against the planing stop with a joiner plane or, or whatever, you need some, some runway space at the end of the bench. So, you know, at least two feet off the end of that bench. And that gives you a good place for, you know, like a garbage can you could put there, um, you know, and get your shavings right in there. So my second tip, position your frequently used tools efficiently within reach. And there are a lot of different ways you can do that. You know, in a small shop, you typically don't have a lot of floor space. So you really want to minimize the footprint of everything that you can. And that means storing as much as you can on the walls. You know, you, if you think about it, you probably have at least three to four times as much storage space on the floor Uh, sorry, on the walls as you would on the floor. So it's much easier to store things up on the walls. You just have more space that way. My preference is for open wall storage, shelves, racks, holders, things like that. Um, that With shelves and racks, I can see where my tools are. I can see what I'm looking for. I can get to it easy and I can return it easy as I'm working. So that helps to keep my workspace clear. If I'm using a chisel, and I'm done with it I can just put it right in a rack on the wall above the workbench and I don't have to you know I I'm not so lazy about putting tools away I like to arrange my wall storage when I have it so that I have the the deeper shelves are up higher on the wall and this is sort of counterintuitive to what you might see a lot of times you might see the shallower shelves up higher but I like the deeper shelves to be up higher um and that just makes things easier to, to get to. Um, and the, that way the deeper shelves aren't interfering so much with the bench top real estate. Um, the lower items are on shallow racks, chisel racks and things like that, that don't protrude from the wall more than a, a couple of inches. You might think that a, a tool cabinet with doors is a good idea. They're not my favorite. Um, I think they look beautiful and I, I do agree that they keep dust off of tools better than open storage. What I don't like is how tool cabinets stick out so far from the wall. Now, if you have a tool cabinet and it's not positioned above your bench, it's, you know, positioned on the other side of the shop or on another wall or whatever, that it, so it won't interfere with the bench, um, it seems to work out just fine for some people. But if I'm placing it away from the workbench, that's taking wall space away from something else that I'm probably not going to store right above the workbench either. So, um, that's one of the reasons I don't particularly care for tool cabinets because I I like to have my tools close at hand, um, right, right near the bench so that they're right there. Um, the other problem with tool cabinets that I find is, is that when the cabinet is closed, it's typically quite twice as deep as it is when it's open. And when it's open, it's no more effective than open storage on the walls. So if you've got a cabinet and you're going to keep it closed most of the time to keep the dust off the tools and everything, well, that cabinet is sticking out real far over top of your bench if it's over your bench, and it's just taking up space. Um, you know, when you try to do assembly, the cabinet gets in the way. and Again, it's just it's not my favorite way to, to store my tools. Um, I like the open, shallow racks and shelves the best. Um, in my shop now I don't have that option because it I'm in more of a a unclimate controlled drafty humid shed um and anything that I leave out turns to rust you know within a matter of days so I really can't leave things out on the walls like I did in my old shop so I like a traditional tool chest that sits on the floor it does take up some floor space um and I you know I it's a little bit um counterintuitive to what i said before Uh, you want to minimize things that take up floor space but the nice thing about the traditional chests because of how low that it is it can sit underneath the overhang of a workbench if it's low enough um, which is kind of tucked out of the way anyway because your workbench is sitting in that space so um, and a, a tool chest can also serve double duty you know you can you can use it as a saw bench in a pinch or sit down if it's well built you can sit on top of your uh of your tool chest as well so uh, traditional tool chests and wall storage are my two my two favorite ways for storing tools. Tip number three is to add more storage wherever you can. You know there never seems to be enough miscellaneous storage in any shop, you know even in a large shop. My preference is, is small, shallow cabinets and cupboards for storage of things that i, I don't want to see and leave out on shelves. Um, you know a shallow cabinet hung up on the wall. It's a great place to store finish, sandpaper, fasteners, you know all all the things that kind of get lost um, and because you're not grabbing for them all the time, you can store them up higher on the wall than you typically would, um, and then that way they're not in the way so much also don't overlook spaces in corners like behind a door or something like that, especially. I built a chimney cupboard years ago. Um, I did an article on it for a popular woodworking magazine, but the primary reason I built it is because I needed some storage. I wanted to put some storage right behind the door in my old shop and there, that was really the the best type of, of cupboard or storage cabinet that I could put there. It's tall, it's narrow, but it still has a lot of room for, to store a lot of stuff. So something like a tall, narrow chimney cupboard or something along those lines, tuck it in a corner behind a door provides lots of storage space, looks nice, than a bunch of boxes piled in a corner or, or on shelves, um, and it's a, a nice little project. Um, another great way to add storage to your walls is to hang some some full-length French cleats or shaker peg rails. So you can hang things. With, the nice thing about the French cleats, you can hang things just about anywhere. You make a little rack with a French cleat on it, and If you have a French cleat that basically wraps around your shop, you can use those racks, hang stuff just about anywhere you want, but it also makes it easy to reconfigure. So you get a new tool or you make a new appliance or shooting board or something and you want to hang that on the wall, but the space isn't quite right. Well, you don't have to unscrew a bunch of stuff from the walls. All you got to do is move the rack because it's just hanging there on a French uh, French cleat or make a new rack. And you just kind of move things around a little bit. It just makes it makes everything real easy to reorganize. Um, I even hang my small wall cupboard on a French cleat so that I can move it. The, the cupboard itself, I can move the whole cabinet very easily if I want because it's not screwed to the wall. It's just hanging on a French cleat. So tip number four is don't forget the ceiling. A lot of basements and garages have open joists or rafters in the ceiling and these areas can be really great storage spaces for less used items. I've even seen some folks who build like swing-down storage boxes and racks that'll fit up between the open joists of a ceiling like in a basement or something like that. And when you need to get something, you pull a little pin or a latch and the little storage box or cabinet swings down from between the joists and when you get what, you know, you get what you need out of there and you swing it back up and latch it back in place. Um, You know, between your joists, there are really great areas for small stuff and narrow items like your lumber cutoffs, dowels, clamps, anything that you really want to keep up off the floor and out of the way, but still within easy reach. That stuff that's not too big. Um, Also, if you have a large open space above above your ceiling joists, like you might find in a, a garage with a, if your garage has a pitched roof, but no second floor above it, you probably have some joists or um, or trusses that are holding up your roof, and there's a whole bunch of space up there. If you lay down some plywood, make yourself a little ladder that you you can secure to the wall out of the way, and that'll give you a little, some storage space up there, you know, above the rafters, above the, uh, the joists, where it's out of the way, you know, great spot for, for less used things that you don't need to get to all the time, but when you do need to get to it, you know where it is, you can get to it pretty easily. Tip number five, don't store lumber. If your space is small, you probably just don't have a lot of room for lumber storage. In my old shop, I had very little room for lumber storage. I had two small racks that I put way up high on the wall and I essentially only stored the lumber that I needed for the project that I was working on. I bought my lumber as I needed it. Um, If I had big stuff, I cut it outside in the driveway or in the backyard and brought them into the shop put them up on the storage rack during the build, but I really didn't store large quantities of lumber in the shop because it just takes up too much space. Again, if you've got a few extra feet of space, put something up high on the wall. It does make the lumber a little bit more difficult to, to load and get down out of the rack. Um, but again, we're kind of making compromises here because you're in a small space. Um, Otherwise, you know, just, just store your lumber elsewhere. If you've got a spare shed out in the garage, if your basement is, uh, if your shop is in the basement, um, you know, there there are other options. You can even store your lumber outside, build a little lean-to on the side of your house, just a small roof, and as long as the lumber doesn't get wet, it'll do just fine outside. Tip number six: Don't be a hoarder. Um, and it may this may sound obvious, but you know, I've seen some shops, even really large shops where you couldn't even walk from one end of the shop to the other without tripping on something or having to move something out of your way. If you really want to focus on woodworking and be be successful doing so in a small space, you really can't afford to be a collector. The boxes of plain parts and and chisels and shelves of saws that have been sitting around and, and waiting to be tuned up since the Nixon administration are really not helping anyone's cause. Um, you're doing a disservice to the tools by letting them sit there and rust, and you're doing a disservice to other beginning woodworkers who are having a harder time harder and harder time finding good user tools at fair prices these days um, so you know if you've been if you've been hoarding tools for years, it really sit back and think it might be time to let some of them go. Take the duplicates that you have that haven't been used in the last year or so. Put them on eBay, take them to a flea market or or Midwest tool collectors meet, sell them for a fair price to some beginning woodworker who needs them and is going to put them back to use. Then take that money and get yourself a nice piece of wood and use your tools to make something instead of buying more tools that are just going to sit on shelves and and sit in boxes. Similarly, if you're a wood hoarder, and there are a lot of you out there, um, maybe it's time to take stock of what you really need. If you trip over stacks of lumber in your shop, might be time to, to reassess whether or not that truckload of uh, barn-fresh oak listed on Craigslist is really that much of a bargain. Instead, maybe sell some of what you have and start building things with the prime stock that you've been saving all these years for that special project. Stop saving it. Use your wood. Start making the special projects instead of waiting for the special projects to come along. Remember, wood does grow on trees, folks. You can always get more if you run out. Finally, tip number seven, be a broom Nazi. Chris Schwarz just recently wrote a a blog post, maybe a couple weeks ago, um, about how he gets a lot of, of snarky remarks about photos and how he doesn't actually build anything in his shop because it's always so clean. But, you know, there's really something to be said about working in a clean shop. When your shop is clean and organized, you can be a lot more efficient And you just won't lose things as readily. And in general, you're going to be more productive. My New Jersey shop was so small, I didn't have a choice. I had to sweep my floors frequently just to provide a place for me to stand so that I wouldn't be tracking dust and shavings all over the house. But cleaning actually made me more productive as well. You know, I would usually clean up a little bit between tasks, you know, so if I just finished planing my stock, um, I might clean up before moving on to cutting the joinery. And this would give me five minutes or so to kind of clear my head and refocus on what I was doing next. And then I could just take out the tools I needed for cutting the joinery and stay organized and focused on the task instead of stumbling over tools and shavings on my bench. Um, You know, I wasn't losing marking gauges and marking knives and, and piles of shavings and tools and stuff that was just generally in my way. What I find is that I work faster this way and I can work more precisely this way because I'm more focused on what I'm doing and not, you know, trying to avoid the mess or or looking for that tool that's buried somewhere. And it's really, it's not just a, a good thing for safety reasons. It really can help your efficiency as well. So take your broom out once in a while, clean off your bench, clean up the shavings on the floor. Even if you just sweep them to a pile on the other end of the shop to get them out of your way. So that you're not dropping pieces in there or dropping tools in there. Um, Try to keep things a little bit more organized and tidy and I think you'll end up being more efficient as well. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because the show depends upon your input and participation for its content. My preferred method is for you to record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. This way you just don't have to listen to me the whole time. Uh, You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt021. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at slash support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.